Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Well, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. We're your co-hosts, Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. And today we have a very insightful and interesting conversation for you. We have special guest Dennis Jaffe with us today, and you cannot see him, but you will hear him, I promise. So Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel and Bruce. I'm delighted to be here, and we have so much in common to speak about. Well, I'm very excited for this conversation today. So let me just go ahead and set up the stage for what we're discussing here with the multi-generational family business. So if you are in a position that you want to create a family and a business that will last for multiple generations, you really have to consciously do a lot of intentional work to become a successful family team. And that's what we're here to talk about today with Dennis Jaffe. Now he's a professor. He, I don't know if I said that correctly, professor, (laughs) organizational consultant, family therapist, and family business consultant. And he's helped families really overcome the challenges that get in the way of successfully transferring businesses, wealth, values, commitments, and legacies across generations. So if you want to design a multi-generational family enterprise, this is really a conversation to tune in and listen to, especially if you're in a position of being a first-generation founder of a family business who really wants to have that longevity in the future. Now, let me give a little bit more background information about De- uh, about Dr. Jaffe. So he is a San Francisco-based advisor to families about family business, governance, wealth, and philanthropy. He's a senior research fellow at Banyan Global Family Business Advisors. He's the author of several books, including Borrowed from Your Grandchildren, The Evolution of 100-Year Family Enterprises, Finding Her Voice and Leaving a Legacy, Cross Cultures, How Global Families Negotiate Change Across Generations, Stewardship in Your Family Enterprise, which is developing responsible family leadership across generations and working with the ones you love. His global insights have led to teaching or consulting engagements in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East and Latin America. The Family Firm Institute awarded him the 2017 International Award for Service, and in 2005, he received the Beckard Award for Service to the Field. In 2020, he was awarded a special commendation as an individual thought leader in the field of wealth management by the Family Wealth Report, and he has a BA degree in philosophy, MA in management, and PhD in sociology, all from Yale University, and Professor Emeritus of Organizational Systems and Psychology at Saybrook University in San Francisco. So with all of that, Dennis, Dr. Jaffe, thank you so much for being willing to join us on this conversation. Dennis, and who is that guy that you described? Uh, anyway, I am um, uh, delighted to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and start from a question that maybe might be most on our listeners' minds. Why should a business begin to think multi-generationally if you're just getting started or you've been 10 years or 15 years in the works and you're you're in a position of building a business that you're serving people with, you're you're profiting yourself and your family, you're benefiting from, and you're serving the world. Why should we, from that perspective, start to think multi-generationally? Well, 
there, there's no should about it. I mean, um, this is what families are concerned about. They've created wealth. They've been successful. They're providing for their family. They're creating more wealth than um, they can use on a day-to-day -day basis. And they have young people growing up. And uh, they begin to say, well, what's going to be my legacy? And they begin to ask the question, not how do I get more wealth? Because that seems to be happening. But the question begins to evolve. What is the purpose of our wealth? What do we want to do with it? And um, I, there's no should about it. This is what families begin to think about. As they're successful, they shift not from, they don't lose interest in creating wealth, but they begin to say, well, what, what now? What are we going to do with it? Um, you keep accumulating, 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 and you say, what's this for? Um, what, what's the purpose? And, and families then begin to look. And, um, and, and, and what I learned is that a family business, there's two things about a family business that are different than um, a public uh, corporation. And one is the family members have a personal relationship and they have non-financial goals and objectives. So the family members look at each other and they say, well, now, what are we, what are we doing with our wealth? What, what's it all about? What does it mean for us? And um, it's not, uh, people have different ideas and young people kind of want to know what's the deal for me and, and what do you expect of me and, and, and vice versa. And so the families have to have conversations. So family businesses are united, not just by the fact that, that they have wealth together, but they have other objectives, non-financial goals and objectives. And the second thing is, is that if you begin to create wealth and, um, you know, as, as an elder and grandfather myself, you begin to say, well, look, I have, I look at my children, I look at my grandchildren, um, pretty soon the grandchildren are going to be having their own children. What, what's, um, you know, what do I want to see for the future? And, um, uh, and uh, so I'm concerned now about my legacy, uh, not, not to create more wealth, but to, to kind of, and these are the, the things that come up in a family. And the other thing I would say, and this will get us into our discussion, is that a lot of people feel to have two responses to it. One is, hey, I'll deal with that later, and I'm doing fine right now. Um, <laughs> let's just put it off there. You know, if things are if things are great. Uh, and the other um, the other thing is that they uh, they um, they don't really listen. They, they make assumptions about their children, they make assumptions about what they want to do. And these are based on emotional things. And they don't really um, begin to engage the family and, and talk about their expectations for the future. So a lot of wealth creators, it's all in their head. Mm. And you just assume that things are going to go fine. But for, as, as we can see in the last you know, two, three years, the world is not is a different place. And, um, and it's changing so rapidly that you can't just say, well, I'll just keep do uh keep my things together and everything will work out it won't and and anybody that looks out will see it's not going to just work out you've got to do some work yes and, um, well what's really interesting about that is that anything that you as a human want to do something valuable with can't just be left to chance and i think so many times it can be really easy just to fall into default mode and go with the status quo and you're realizing that you had a certain set of assumptions and expectations that are not being fulfilled. And then there's disappointment, there's frustration, there's tension. Well, if it was never communicated clearly or worked out intentionally, you're going to be, you're going to find yourself in a place that you did not ultimately want to be in. And so 
Dennis, Dr. Jaffe, I think it would be really valuable to hear just have you lay out why is it so valuable to study these long-term family businesses that have been around for a hundred years and more that have successfully passed wealth and businesses and enterprise over multiple generations? Why is that so valuable to look at in terms of this conversation about getting started and figuring out where you want to go? Well, let me give you a little history because um, I, I think that that's important. I've been in this field for a field of family wealth and family business actually since uh, the field began in the early 80s. And I've uh, what I saw is that things have evolved. Advisors like, like us, you know, kind of make recommendations and say families should do this. Let's set up family meetings. Let's, let's uh, have a family constitution. Um, and uh, so I was saying, well, wait a minute. How do we know that these are useful and important? I mean, I think they are, but how do we know? And mm -hmm. the second thing I began to see as I traveled globally, um, I began to see that 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 the a lot of these prescriptions were U.S. kind of based, and uh, families were becoming more global, and um, and wealth certainly is is, a, is and family business is an issue in every country in the world. Um, it's the foundation of wealth all over the world. And I wondered whether the globally the um, things that we were saying were, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, were relevant. So when I, I made a very good career move seven years ago, and I really recommend this, I retired, <laughs> and I, I I retired from my academic, and I had a lot of time on my hands. And uh, what I wanted to do was to do to really um, do the journey and, and see what were the best family business is doing? What can they teach us in their wisdom? Um, and, and this is a kind of uh, research that um, Jim Collins um, in his, uh, you know, Built to Last and Good to Great. Um, this is, um, if you remember back in the 80s, there was Tom Peters and Waterman uh, talking about um, excellence. Um, and the idea of studying, don't you don't study the average family business. That's not very interesting. The, the mm -hmm. idea is what about studying the best? Then we have a dilemma. The dilemma is, well, how do you define that? Um, how do you find the best? And so I began to say, well, gee, what, let, let's make a definition that um, any family that has gone beyond the third generation in, um, in, in wealth and, and, and ownership and control has three generations of experience. If they can maintain kind of harmony and connection and identity as a family, and remember now they're not a family, a household, there are many, many, many households. Um, that uh, that that's certainly a sign of success. And if they have little and growing, not a single business, because very often families sell their business and diversify and go into other areas. And um, but they have um, a kind of a, a growing um, and uh, you know large amount of wealth. So those three criteria were my criteria: third generation identity as a family, shared identity. Uh, not just a business and um, and a huge wealth uh, creation over um, uh, generations. The average family that I studied, their net worth was somewhere north of $800 million, so uh, U.S. So this, these were enormous. I studied family, 100 families, 20 countries, uh, every continent, um, really prominent uh, companies and families. And I interviewed um, two members of each family, an elder generation and a younger generation. 
and um, just simply ask them, talk to them at length about their evolution, what they did now, how those things they did now evolved over the generations, uh, what kinds of non-financial things they did. I didn't ask about the financial. Um, it's not a business book. It's really about it. My, my study is about, what, about families. Um, and uh, I got a, a little bit about the business and how the business was managed, but more about the governance of the business than the business itself. And, um, and, and what I found is that these 100-year families had a great sense of their legacy and history, and they could look back for the fifth generation and say, well, you know, grandpa did this, or one of the things that grandpa did that um, we really made a difference for us was this. And so I could look in a fourth generation, I could look back and say, first, second, third generation, what did we do? How did we evolve? And, and, and that, that's in my title. And um, so that the route, the, the uh, looking at the best families, these hundred year families enables us to um, look back and say, what do you have to do in the first and second generation if you want to not make the conditions in your family to be a long-term family enterprise? What things do you have to set in motion in the first, second generation? Um, and, that, uh, and, and I found some incredible stories and some incredible ideas. And my perspective is that there are many paths and so I, I, I'm not trying to distill and say, here's what you should do. What I'm trying to do is to say, here are different paths and here are different options. And, and there, are, there are kind of themes um, like family engagement, like uh, transparency that come up uh, over all the families. But uh, families go about doing that in, in very different ways. So, so that, that's why 100-year families are relevant and, and important to, uh, to study. So Dennis, yes. Yeah, so as I was looking through your um, your wisdom and your books, um, what what hit me was that the problem grows exponentially as the first generation has children, and then those children have children, and and then the next generation have children, and so on and so forth. And so the family grows and grows and grows. From your research, because you know we're we're working with mostly families that are in the first generation, some that are maybe starting a second generation. From your research, do you find that those family values and and uh, basically character development from legacy is better served if there's direct participation in the business or simply that those character values are passed on well let me let me answer that in, in a couple of a couple of ways because that, that's really uh, the key question um, so uh, first of all um, a first generation person um, has a certain um, mindset and a certain experience they've done it themselves they've come most usually not from wealth um, but they come from either poor middle class um, they come from a you know, kind of a, you know, an environment, um, very, very focused in their, uh, own community and, and, uh, and they work their way up and they can be proud of it. But the way a first generation person, um, lives in the world, he, um, and, and, and all but, um, you know, three of them were, were started by, uh, businesses were started by men. Um, uh, he's the sole decision maker. He doesn't answer to anybody. He's not part of a team. He and uh, 
he's grown up and um, reached a point where um, he doesn't. He um, uh, I, I talk about how uh, wealthy people often live in a bubble, and a, and a wealth creator um, lives in a bubble in the sense that uh, by the time they've been successful for 30 years, people are not coming around and challenging them. People are not saying, "Well, hey, do this." So, um, uh, so they don't really understand that um, they 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 take their assumption, they take their uh, mindsets about having made it on themselves, and they'll say things to their kids like, "You have to make it on your own." And it's like these kids have grown up with wealth; they've grown up in a in a certain household. How can they possibly understand what it means to make it on your own? They mm-hmm. I, I, people say, "I want my kids to make it on their own," and I say, "Well, wait a minute." Uh, Tell me about, um, or I, I, I don't want my kid. Oh, here's one that's great. Uh, they say I don't want my uh, kids. I, I'm not going to talk about the wealth because I don't want them to know how how wealthy we are. Mm. And I said, well, yeah. what do you think they think? Tell me about your house. What does it look like? What school do they go to? What's you, what community do they live in? Who are their friends? And it's kind of like, how could they not know that they're wealthy? So what you're saying when you say I don't want them, you know, to know or I don't I want them to start their own is that um, does that mean that um, sometime they're going to be cut off? Are you going to pay for their education uh, if they have a an accident or a heart attack? Are you going to pay for it um, when they get out of school? Are they uh, are they cut off? What does it mean? And um, and very often the the other thing um, uh, I you wanted uh, to to say is when I started talking about family, this is the word. Everybody understands what family is. No. Uh, I said, well, tell me about your family. And these are fourth generation. Now they say, well, what do you mean? And I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? Your family. And they said, well, here, you, you don't understand. I, I, I have several families. One is I have my household, my spouse, my kids, um, you know, that, that, that and in, in, in these families and the third, fourth generation, there are probably, there may be seven family branches from the second generation. There may be 80 households. Um, so there, there's all these households together. So family is about extended family. And I call that a tribe. But the first generation, they don't know about extended family. They don't know about other people. They don't know about shared leadership. They don't know about having partners. Um, so, uh, one of the things that uh, first things that I learned is that the elders in the family didn't have a good idea of preparing for the future. They they tended to look at things the, from their own experience, which was perfectly reasonable, but they didn't really anticipate and understand the kinds of challenges that their kids had working together, deciding who's going to be uh, in the business or how they're going to be involved in the business deciding what, how to deal with change, uh, how to deal with unexpected setbacks, um, uh, dealing with, with conflict and, and difficult issues. The older generation doesn't like to talk about conflict. It doesn't like disagreement. The younger generation um, are, have issues and they have to figure out a way to deal with it. So, um, I, you know, so, so um, one of the first things that I learned is that the older generation has to really listen to the next generation because they have very, very unclear and, and un, unrealistic idea about the future because they see it from their own uh, eyes and their own experience. They don't really understand the experience of their kids and the people that their kids marry and their kids' kids. 
And uh, all those people have to have a voice. And um, uh, I think a lot of elder generation people don't bring the family members in soon enough. Um, oh. and, and, um, and, 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 and that, 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 that's a problem that I think um, it, it creates a problem for the family if they don't know how to work together or they don't talk about things. Then all of a sudden the elder is gone and family looks at each other and say, who, who are you? I have to work with you. Um, the business has, you know, now there's, there's five owners and we, we've never talked. Um, uh, you know, who's, who's running this thing? Who, you know, uh, you know, that, um, so there's a lot of first to second generation preparation that has to happen. And, 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 um, I, I really learned that the first generation people are not the people that, that are the best equipped to set that up because they don't really understand the issue and, and the challenge that's ahead. So Dennis says, as I was looking through your book too, uh, it hit me because we do a lot of basic estate planning with our clients and our estate lawyer, one of our estate lawyers always says um, during this process that if you don't take care of it, in-laws become outlaws. So in this process, how, what have you found in your research as far as the, the difficulty of having the in-laws who are married now into the family business and what have the successful families done to actually bring them into the fold and make them successful also? There's a really big, I'm in St. Louis, and there's a really big family that owns a car, huge car dealership chain, and the, the son-in-law now actually runs it very successfully. And so I'm curious in your research how. Okay. Well, one of the things that that I'm a crusader for right now, Bruce, is um, is is the way in which the negative assumptions by the older generation are reinforced by the advisors. And so let let's let's take something like um, out in laws or outlaws. Mm-hmm. Um, I what do you what what kind of an attitude does that show? That that that's a first of all. That's a demeaning thing to say about someone who marries into your family. And when, when family members say that about themselves, it's, 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 it's demeaning. It's, um, it's, it's based on nothing but, but, uh, you know, no reality. Um, and it, and it, and it, it creates a, 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 a rift in the family. Mm. Now people marry into the family. Here is the, the, the re, re- you select somebody to marry. It's your decision. You don't, in the past and in other in other cultures, your choice about who to marry is vetted. <laughs> your your parents and your relatives, and they even select people. There, there's a, it, marrying is not a personal choice mm-hmm. um, among the super wealthy. It's it's a negotiated thing. Nowadays, you go to college, you meet somebody. Um, a lot of people, um, uh, you know, get together and. They don't even understand when they get together that one of the people in this, in this relationship is hugely wealthy and they don't know what that is. So the issue is to have a respectful process to bring the next generation in to say, we are, you're marrying your loved one. That, that's really great. But your loved one is, is part of this huge thing. And, and you probably, you may have come from a poorer family. You certainly don't have not come from that kind of wealth you need education and um and um and learning um about what this entity is 
Now, a lot of families, and, and again, um, I'm you know speaking from my 100 families, but also my experience, the people that marry in are sometimes incredibly talented. Um, and uh, they have, they work for other institutions. Um, they have a lot of resources. And so the question is not, uh, this thing outlaws has no meaning at all other than a slap and say, don't have a prenup and don't let them get involved and, and other kinds of ways of making them not really feel like family members. Whereas um, the, the issue is, how, what is their role? Um, there is a there is a chance that they can get divorced and the marriage won't take. There is a there are things that are confidential that the family um, doesn't feel comfortable sharing. But there are also ways to um, bring uh, married ins is what I call them, not outlaws, uh, into yeah. the family. So, for example, if you're creating family activities, family meetings, you're having learning experiences, you're you're doing things together. Um, these are way these are certainly things that married ins can be involved in. Um, the question of the business um, uh, comes up in, uh, in married ends. And the question is, if, if the person that they're marrying is part of the business and they have a very stressful life, um, one family I'm working with now, for example, the question is, do they um, do all the family members have to live in the home community of, mm. uh, of the business? And um, some of the people that are married in have wonderful careers. And they're not anxious to do that. And, and uh, so there, there are issues that concern them. So the, the, the issue of bringing family members in, family members that marry in often say, well, you know, there's all this stuff about your family and this and that. You know, I have a family too. Ooh, and we have a legacy. And we have, a, you know, we have things that we value. And we have uh, values that we have. And um, some of them are pretty good. Um, I, I like, let, let's talk about incorporating expanding the family rather than saying here are our values and if you don't agree with this um tough beans so, so that's I a like long how, answer, but, but yeah but, but, I, but I like how you're talking about expanding so you're thinking about i mean everything that you're saying is coming from the angle of well hey we have blind spots in this area of listening and incorporating other leadership and and focusing and working as a team so what I'm hearing behind that is maybe if the first generation could be more open to um, additional um, valuing of the other family members and and thinking about how to collaborate, how to expand based on the right. capabilities of new people coming in, that would maybe set them further than just saying, well, this is my way. These are my values. This is my family. Do it my way. Am I hearing correctly on that? Right. And here's an example. Here, here's a way that some, uh, I, again, I got hundreds of stories in the, in the book. Um, so families, <coughs> want, some families have a way of bringing in married in people where they say, well, we want to introduce you to the family. So you talk about what, who you are and what's important to you from your family. And then we have a discussion about what is it that you, what are the gifts that you bring to our family from your experience? And, um, and then, and, and part of that is we then tell you about, our family and what what we offer and um we talk about how to um how how you want to be part of this family what you uh what you offer what 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 you bring how how we can use that and the family is it takes a positive appreciative mm -hmm. expansive view of people marrying in not a uh, kind of a punitive and a and, and anticipating the worst now they're there now again they're 
any family will, will now respond to that. Well, what about a disruptive? What about you know assumptive? And what about you know um, people that marry and that are you know that just have a negative um, you know kind of a difficult create difficulties and that's an issue. But um, you you have a possible difficult people. You don't create a, a rules for everybody that keeps everybody out just to the off chance that somebody will marry somebody that that creates difficulty that when there's a difficult person in the family it's often a family member not as married in and the family mm -hmm. has to figure out what to do about that person and uh and how to deal with it but but it's not about whether they married in people or not so dr jeffy kind of back to bruce's question which um the idea of if I'm a first generation wealth creator, I'm building a business and I eventually want to think about having a long term family. I want longevity in my family and I want to have a cohesive family that is supportive of each other, that does think of themselves multiple generations down the road of we're 80 households or however many, and we're still a family unit and we're functioning together and working together. I don't know if this is a, a different question or the same question, but is that first generation wealth creator, business owner best served by thinking about, I want to create a long-term business that the family works together in, or by thinking about, I want to create a long-term family? The latter. So the idea is you want to create a, a, a long-term family. You want the family to not say, okay, let's all go off. We're all rich. Let's let's all have a good life. And you want there to be connection. So the the focus in my research, I was studying families, not businesses. And what I saw is half of the families uh, in my study by the third generation um, had sold the legacy business. The ones uh, that didn't sell the legacy business, half of those family members had a non-family leader in their business. So by the third generation, uh, or, or when I was studying them, only 25% of the businesses continued. But the family continued. The family had new investments. The family had diversified. The family had a family office, uh, family foundation. So, um, so we're, we're looking at the, the, the family. But then the family has the question of who owns it? Mm -hmm. How do we own it? How do the owners get together? What, how do the owners make decisions? Who chooses? They have a board of directors. Who chooses the board? Who chooses the family leader? Um, and um, and those are what we call governance decisions. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of things that I, that I see in these families that in the you know in the hundred in the hundred year families that relate is is one is they they create a business structure that includes a board and owners council. And the owners, which are not all the family members, and they, they, um, uh, the, the younger family members, um, are kind of, uh, expect to be owners. And, and this is a situ, this is a, a situation that doesn't in, in, occur in public companies. You have a bunch of people that know they're going to become owners, but they have no control right now. Um, and then, so the ownership structure and the business structure has to have room for the future owners. And uh, that's an interesting category. So, the other thing that these families do ahead. is they create a family structure, family meetings, family vacations. They have vacation homes that they own together. They have family foundations. They have a non-financial 
family structure. And, and these families have what I call two pillars. They have the business pillar and the business structure, but they also have the family structure. And these are different. Um, I, 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 all of the families talk about how these are different functions and different leaders uh, are of the, of the, the non-financial leaders and the financial leaders um, are different. They have to interact. They have to have shared, um, uh, you know, kind of activities and, uh, and, and rules and policy, but they're, they're parallel structures. They're not, they, they're, they're not the same structure. So when you say who's going to be the leader of the family and, and often the first gen said, well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who's the leader next. And he doesn't really understand that the next generation is going to have leadership and leaders. And we call them stewards, actually, oh, because they're going to have maybe somebody leading the family council. They may have somebody leading the family foundation. They may have board members uh, who are family members who are on the board, but who work in other businesses or other, other you know, lawyers, uh, you know, professionals um, that are involved. They may have a family member uh, who are working in the business. The, they may or, may or may not be the leaders. So the, the, the first generation says, I need a leader. I want to clone myself and have another person continue this forever. The reality is that the family needs leadership. They need to develop a cadre of leaders. They need to develop people that, that, that lead the community, not lead uh, as an individual entrepreneur, but lead as a community member. And this is a different kind of leadership. And, and the families that I talked about, um, they, they all talk about there was a shift from the first generation to the second or third generation, seeing uh, having a different view of leadership and a different view of working together. So I'm going to package a, a big question kind of all together. What I'm hearing, though, is even though a very successful family who wants to pass on businesses and wealth multi-generationally and, and create a financial legacy and also have a connected family for multiple generations, they need to focus on the family, but there also has to be this enterprising element of value creation and you're creating wealth. Otherwise, you could just say, well, we love each other. We hang out together, but there's no um, financial component that is allowing for all of these functions of having the family uh, support the, I guess, to borrow from the family wealth book and the idea of family family wealth, there's nothing to support the individual, the the um, the personal capital, the human capital. There's nothing to uplift them if there's not the financial component. So you're saying let's focus on the family rather than just on the business, but there needs to be this business element. And so as a first generation or second generation wealth creator, you're in a position of saying, I want to create something that lasts for multiple generations ahead. How do I be generative and value creating so that I'm not in a position of just saying, well, I created something and now my wealth has been shrunken and dissipated and broken down by generations after me that became entitled and dependent and spoiled on what I created and, and don't have that value of work? Well, okay. The, um, there's two things. One is developing the next generation. Let, let me put that aside and talk about the, the governance of the business. The business um, governance <clears throat> is a, an important part of the family. How 
do we govern it? And, and what happens in, um, in family businesses in the first generation is that the, uh, the business is successful. And we know that businesses don't rise and, 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 and add value continually. They're in the kind of an S curve. And so it begins to mature. And what happens in the, um, uh, after 20 or 30 years, the business matures, the, uh, the leaders, um, uh, get older and they don't bring in new blood. They're not innovative. And so what I found in the successful families is that there were three groups that were important in the business future. And one group is the elders. They have wisdom. They have experience. They have contact. Um, uh, and they, they really, um, they have a lot of, um, you know, kind of social capital that uh, they, they need to pass on. The, uh, the, the elder generation has then advisors, non-family executives, advisors like you, um, estate planners, lawyers, um, people. And, and these people are, by their nature, they're not innovators. They're not hired to um, change. They're, they're hired to listen to the founder and, and, and do so. So they, we, I call them, um, they're, they're kind of, uh, um, they're, 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 they're continuers. Uh, they're, they're, mm. uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're people that, that, um, that, that, uh, have a kind of a conservative, but they're, they have business discipline. They're professional. They professionalize the business. The family business and the successful families is the third group. And this is what's really exciting and different in a family business that no other business has. They have a, the young generation are what we call opportunists. Your younger generation, they're global citizens. They travel. They're, you invest in their education. They, um, uh, the, the ones that are, that are, that are capable go to really good schools. They get all kinds of, uh, in, uh, in, uh, experiences. They, they intern at, uh, businesses. They work in financial services firms. They, they, um, they, they go to networks, um, uh, and, uh, and they have a lot of, um, new ideas. And so the, 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 the challenge is these advisors, and the elders have a kind of conservative, let's business discipline, let it go on, but that won't, can't go on forever. And so the families have a way. How do we allow the next generation to bring in their new ideas? Some of them are half baked. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, a 25 year old uh, has a business idea and hey, it's not the greatest thing. I, we're going to set up this great, you know, nightclub and, uh, you know, kind of community center and <laughs> restaurant and things like that. And everybody's going to come from the community. Not a good idea. Uh, but other ideas are great. Let's, let's go, um, let's begin to expand globally. Let's, um, begin to, um, you know, kind of make a sustainable, um, you know, focus in our investment. Let's, let's begin to, um, set some new ideas. New, so the question is, how does the family deal with, uh, innovation and change and allow the family members to, um, develop the business and, and continue the business, but also to be innovative? And these families have, family banks they have um in, they have um family offices where they have internal um you know discussions they talk about social capital so that that's the business governance of a, of the a successful family enterprise and it includes the innovation energy of the next generation that's one side the other side of it is how do you develop the next generation to you mentioned the e word entitled and every family member again another negative thing that that older people say look at their children how do i keep them from being spoiled how do i keep them from feeling entitled 
And um, the way I respond to that is to say, well, um, how old are your kids? Oh, they're 30, you know, 18. Uh, I say, well, tell me what you've done. Um, tell me about them. What are you proud of about them? What, what, what have you taught them? It's kind of like, uh, you know, what have you been doing um, as, a, as a father and a, as a parent for all these years? And, um, and, and what kind of values have you instilled in them uh, mm-hmm. from the time that they were born by living with you and watching you? Um, and so we start with that. But then we say, well, well now they're, they're, your family is special. Let's, let's be real. You have wealth that is um, un, unimaginable to most families. You have trusts, you have family office, you have, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, this plan, as, you know, okay, ways of governance, uh, shareholder agreements, uh, ownership agreements, blah, blah, blah. You need to have an education program and you need to be talking with the next generation about how they can be helpful. And some of them will want to work in the business. Um, and, and that, that's, that's wonderful. Or, or, become involved in governance. Some of them, and this is important, have other ideas. Like, for example, um, they want to become teachers in the inner city, and they know that the family is wealthy, and they come to the family and say, look, we want to become teachers. Um, we're, uh, we're in love, and we both love education, and um, let me tell you what a teacher in the inner city makes. And uh, we're a wealthy family. Is, is there a deal in our family to get help? Um, so that we can have a house and, you know, have childcare or whatever it is we need in order to be teachers. We can't live on a teacher's salary. And these are, these things come up in the family and the family says, well, it, it has to say, is this a good use of our wealth? If you're a part, member of our family that really cares passionately about something and it doesn't add wealth, um, uh, what do we do? Is, is this, is this, a, is this something that we, um, uh, help with, or is it something that we ignore? And so families have discussions about wealth in the next generation, and not just about who's going to work in the business, but what do we what do we value? And some mem- many members of next generation, you know, hugely wealthy families, um, we're beginning to see, for example, the, the children in the, the Gates, uh, Bill Gates's, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates's family are going into philanthropy. The people in the Walton family are going into philanthropy. People in the Rockefeller family a hundred years ago. Um, is that are they supposed to be become business people and add more wealth, or is it valid for them to become social entrepreneurs? And uh, it isn't just the wealthiest families; it's, it's it's a lot of families can have that discussion. So the next generation, you want them to be responsible. You want them to um, uh, you know, but but uh, uh, what they do uh, is really open. And these families that are successful have a family discussion group, a family council that meets, family annual family meetings where they get together and um, they they um, uh, activate these values by um, showing interest in uh, all the things that the next generation is doing, not just saying, "Hey, if you're not bringing in money, you know, it's like you're you're a parasite, and we don't want to hear about you." That that's a terrible message to give. If you're not working for the business and you're not adding wealth to it, um, you're not as important to us or you're not uh, worth it. That, that's not the attitude of these families. 
So there's so much packed into this. We need to wrap up for the conversation today. And I feel like we could talk for a very long time. I know we mentioned that before the show even began. Um, But as we're bringing this to a close today, I would say, first of all, I'm really thankful that you, um, maybe you retired in the typical sense of the word, but you really didn't retire. You started um, really digging into something that was super valuable and important and, and spent your time figuring out and researching successful wealthy families and then bringing that knowledge to the world in a way that could help other families grow in a way that is generative and is sustainable and is long-term. And so I just want to thank you very much for not retiring and becoming self-focused. Yes. If I may add one thing, because I think it's, and it's a great way to end. So um, I meant when I said retire, um, I meant it not ironically, but my definition of retirement is when you get to the point where um, you don't need to make money, you don't need to think about money, you can do anything you want, um, and that for successful people it occurs at different times of life, then you begin to say, well, I'm just making choices, I'm just doing what I want to do. So writing a book and doing the research, I had some support, um, but basically um, that, was what, that was what I did with my life for a couple of years, and I am so happy that I did it. Um, so that that's what retirement is. And I think in, in um, a good way to end is, is to say that the family business elders, the people that, that you work with who have created the wealth, um, have to understand that they, they probably created their wealth and they're maybe in their 50s or 60s. And looking at, at life right now, um, they have a 20 or 30 year career ahead of them at 60. Um, and uh, and and uh, they've been very successful. So they could do what I did, which is to say, what do I really want to do? And they can step back because at 60, your kids are 40 and they're probably ready to, to be um, the, uh, the the operators and the, the key people in business. And you can step back as a family member and become an elder, become uh, not have power, not have control, but say, I'm going to work as a mentor to my grandchildren or my children. I'm going to work in politics and social action and in professional groups. I'm going to add, um, make the world a better place. And so um, one of the things that I think fa- family uh, wealth creators have to say is, well, I've done this. I've been, I really succeeded. Do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Or maybe there's something else I could do now that I've been so successful. Maybe there's some wonderful things ahead. And I'm a real advocate of, you know, 60-year-olds saying, well, what's my, uh, what's my next career? And uh, what can yes. I do with the success I have to make a difference? And, and, and it's a major life change at 60 that didn't used to exist because that life stage didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And now it does. I love that because we talk frequently about we don't want to have retirement be an end goal because most people think I'm going to work and then I'm just going to focus on myself after I retire. And instead you said, how can I use all of this learning and wisdom and knowledge that I've acquired and gained to be even more useful, just in a different capacity to others and tremendously add value to people's lives. So thank you for doing that and for having that very healthy generative view of those later years that are extremely useful, not only to you, but to others. And um, there is again, just so much that we would like to say here, but for the sake of leaving this conversation in a position where we could pick up and have another conversation to continue on some of these ideas. 
Can you just share what, uh, where our listeners can find you if they're looking for more information and what tools and resources that you have to help families grow in this family enterprising way? Well, one of the things that I have that's a, um, that I, I, I consider part of my legacy is my website, DennisJaffe.com, has um, uh, more than 100 articles that people can download um, at no cost and a lot of resources and tools and ideas. So that's a repository of my legacy is, is that. And, um, uh, you know, reading, um, um, you know, the books, uh, I'm available on email and, uh, djaffe at dennisjaffe.com. And I love to hear from people and I respond to, uh, I don't get so many that I can't respond to them. And, um, of course, people can read Borrowed from Your Grandchildren, which, which tells more about the kinds of things that I've been talking about. And um, I, I love when people read it. And, um, and I think it's really useful for any family that wants to look ahead and say, how do we become a generative wealth creating in the widest sense of the word, uh, meaning of the word wealth? Well, I love this conversation. I love the topic. And again, we'll... I'd love to continue to unpack these ideas. I've read one and a half of your books, um, actually one of your papers. We have several of your books and just so thankful for the work that you've done in this area. I think it's extremely useful to any family that's truly wanting to grow. So um, thank you for being here today. Thank you for joining us on this conversation and for the work that you do and for sharing it with our audience. Thank you for doing what you do and for your own uh, work and interest in this field. Thank you. Well, in closing, if you are listening, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.